Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. to Burned by Books. Before I get to my interview with debut novelist Peter Baker, whose novel Plains is an absolute must for your summer reading, I want to highlight two timely interviews that are coming up this month. The first, in the wake of the leaked Supreme Court decision regarding the fate of Roe v. Wade, is with Shelley Oria, editor of a new collection from McSweeney's Press titled I Know What's Best for You. Stories on Reproductive Freedom. She'll be joined by one of the contributors to the collection, the novelist Kirsten Valdez Quaid. The urgency of this collection could not be more intensely felt, and I'll be talking with Shelley and Kirsten about the role of literature in addressing the past and future of reproductive rights and the damage that this rejection of a long standing right to the choice of when and how to carry a pregnancy will inevitably bring. The second interview is with the political theorist and scholar Elizabeth Anker, whose most recent book, Ugly Freedoms, takes on, among other things, the political and societal failures that have led us to prioritize weapons of war over the lives taken by those guns. We will discuss the uniqueness of the American situation, as well as possible solutions to the country's unwillingness to restrict the sale and ownership of deadly weapons. I hope very much that you'll listen to both of these episodes and seek out these needed books in this dire time for our democracy. While you're listening to the show, take a moment to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and Spotify. It will bring on more listeners. It is now my pleasure to bring you my interview with Peter Baker, author of Plains. Hi, Peter. Welcome back. It is a pleasure to welcome Peter C. Baker to the show. Peter's essays, criticism, reportage, and fiction have been published in The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, The Guardian, The New York Times Magazine, The Nation, The Times Literary Supplement, and Granta. His debut novel, Plains, is out today from Knopf Publishing. Plains is the story of a global crime unfolding principally in the domestic lives of two women, Amira, an Italian convert to Islam living in Rome, and Mel, a school board member in North Carolina. Amira is the direct victim of the crime of extraordinary rendition, her husband Ayub having been abducted without criminal charges and then taken first to Pakistan and later Morocco, where he was imprisoned and tortured. Ayub's eventual return to Amira is a lesson in how trauma comes like a wave for all those in its path. Mel's life appears quieter. Her activist days behind her, she lives an ordinary suburban life, throwing herself into work on the school board and into a workmanlike affair that seems, at the surface, to have little effect on her family life. That is, until the affair is discovered and her one-time partner on the school board is revealed to be deeply entwined with the rendition program that abducted Ayub. 
Her gradual understanding of how two degrees of separation from torture has stained her will fundamentally change her conception of what it means to live in the world. Plains takes the principal conviction of the novel that we can empathize with anyone whose interior is opened up before us and stretches that empathetic vision to include the conduits via which one interiority is linked to another in ways visible and invisible, with a unique sense of care for the difficult choices that people from vastly different backgrounds are confronted with, Peter asks us to consider our responsibility for others who we do not know and will likely never meet. Are we content with a life in which we know the black hood will be drawn over another's head and we are therefore not called upon to act? Can we call ourselves good with the understanding that our ignorance of what happens to people on planes who will never be heard from again protect us from the torturer's tools? Peter's novel asks these powerful and daunting questions from the vantage of the individuals who must count on the goodness of others to offer them hope in the darkness. Welcome to the show, Peter Baker. Great to be here. Thank you. It's lovely to have you here. I, I want to start first with a conversation about the form of planes. It's a very popular thing among academics to talk about form as the content rather than as an ornament layered over content. I think the case for form as content is really persuasive in planes for a number of reasons. The narrative focus moves freely between principal and secondary characters while also traveling across vast geographical space from Rome to Morocco to suburban North Carolina, echoing the global concerns of the plot. Can you talk about how you came to this structure and why you feel it is important to the workings of the novel? I, I love starting with the question about form. I think form is sort of everything to me or the, the primary consideration through which all other novelistic concerns are sort of funneled for me. Uh, I started writing the book in 2011. I was living in North Carolina and I knew that I wanted to write a novel. I knew there were certain preoccupations um, that I had, including preoccupations about post 9-11 torture, rendition, secrecy, etc. that I was exploring in magazine journalism. And I had no idea that was satisfying to me about how to bring those preoccupations into the realm of the novel. And I was at home one night uh, doing some reading for a magazine piece, and I was reading not for the first time the Jane Meyer book, The Dark Side, Jane Meyer, oh, yeah. a reporter who did a lot of um, early groundbreaking reporting, sort of connecting the dots in the, the post 9-11 torture and rendition networks and there was an offhand reference that i had not noticed before because previously when i read the book i had not been living in north carolina so it didn't pop off the page to me but there was this offhand reference to the small but pivotal role played uh, in rendition networks by the shell corporations set up by the CIA to sort of help hide what they were doing. And it said, you know, including in North Carolina. And it just jumped off the page at me. 
And I went to look at the footnote and I pulled up the New York Times story from 2005 that had sort of broken the existence of the existence and the presence of uh, this shell corporation called Aero Contractors in a town called Smithfield, North Carolina. And I went on Google Maps. I was living in Wilmington, North Carolina on the coast. And I saw, gee, this is not far. I could be I could be there tomorrow. Indeed, the next day I got in my car and I drove to Smithfield. And of course, what was it? It was there were houses, normal you know, houses where people lived and a grocery store and the school. It was felt like a portal opening up where I saw, oh, I could take these preoccupations of mine, this material that more typically finds expression in sort of geopolitical thrillers, which I like, I really like, but wasn't interested in writing. And I could, through this portal, get at that material through uh, another set of storytelling conventions about the domestic, the daily, about taking care of your house and your kids and having bills. And that was the beginning. Do, have, course, you read, have you read Mohsen Hamid's Exit West? I have, yeah. Because it's interesting your, your bringing up of this idea of portals made me think of how um, he uses that very directly, almost as a sci-fi element to connect places that we don't normally think of as connected. That explains half of the book, the half that's set in North Carolina. Of course, there's another half that's set in Italy. And that didn't come in until I'd been working on the book for maybe five or six years. I liked a lot of what I had. The book didn't feel quite big enough, but I was struggling with how to maintain the conceit that I had, which was getting at the these big geopolitical topics through this really small lens. How could I make the novel bigger while also keeping the lens small? Eventually, what I came around to was, okay, I'll, I'll keep the lens small, but I, I will move it to uh, another part of the world that allows me to move it to another part of the world and look at life there in the same way, through the lens of the daily and seeing how these headline-making topics, these geopolitical topics, seep down and filter down into everyday life. Yeah, that, I, I like that description of seeping down into it, because it feels like, especially for Amira, straight from the moment that we meet her, it feels as though she's heavy with having had now a long time of it sort of seeping into her everyday life. So that even um, the pleasure she takes from seeing a high school friend and getting to, you know, take a walk with him has these implications of is she being is she being true to her husband who is away and imprisoned? Is she being seen by in particular his community as being devout enough? And that's partly has to do with the way in which these these international programs that have global implications have such direct domestic implications. Absolutely. So why, why Rome and, and North Carolina? You're, you were living in North Carolina, but did these places feel like they were oppositional in some way? Was it a way for you to kind of play up that kind of universal 
uh, smallness of life as it's affected by these large uh, global implications or whether there's some other reason? North Carolina was more automatic and it was because I was there. It was very novelistically invigorating for me to just drive to this town, Smithfield, uh, and later on to other towns in North Carolina that I learned were sort of similarly implicated in um, post-9-11 torture and rendition networks and just walk around. It would just, things would just come to me, just not even from talking to anyone, just from looking saying, there's a house, there's a restaurant and stories and scenes would just start coming out. It was very natural. Once I had decided to sort of enlarge the book by, as I said, moving that tiny lens to somewhere else in the world, it was a more uh, deliberative process. And I think, you know, Italy, Italy just worked. <laughs> I, I want to talk about the, you know, the con- central conceit is, of course, the anxieties and, and crimes and after effects of the rendition program. This is essentially a novel about torture. It is concerned with the literal torture of detainees that the U.S. is responsible for transporting out of the country in a quasi-legal process that gets called extraordinary rendition. But the novel dramatizes the emotional and physical torture that victims and their families undergo after a victim comes home. Why did you want to bring this subject into your fiction? And why did you want to focus on the torture that punishes families? In this case, Amira, wife of Ayub. There have been lots of stories written, uh, novels written, uh, movies produced about post 9-11 torture and rendition. There's a solid handful at this point. Having read and seen, I'm pretty sure all of those I was really keen to do something a little bit different. I did not want to dwell in or on the specifics of what is happening in the torture chamber. I think in some contexts, like in a courtroom context or a journalistic context or a human rights reporting context, those kind of scenes serve an obvious purpose. Um, but I, the more I worked on the book, the more doubts I had about the value of including anything like that in the novel. The question for me was why, why include these scenes? And it seemed very fraught with risk, the risk of uh, kind of voyeurism. To me, it seemed that there's nothing inherently wrong with that approach to storytelling. Indeed, if no one had ever written a story like that, I probably would have done it. But because there were so many of them, it occurred to me that it might be worthwhile to sort of intentionally run in another direction as a writer and see what happened. So Mm -hmm. to not go into the torture chamber, because my sense is that when we approach these subjects through the same narrative templates again and again, even if there's nothing inherently wrong with the template, the template becomes like a a block. It stops us from being able to to understand something or to process it as something that really 
happens. And spy thrillers are, I love spy thrillers, but they're a prime offender on this front. Like when we think about all things post 9-11 through the realm of spy thrillers, that's a problem. In a weird way, even when we see in movie versions the direct torture of another human being, empathy is difficult because that position that they're in seems so removed from, you know, if we are suburban Americans from our our day-to-day existence. And so kind of placing us in Amira and Mel's everyday life and watching the ways in which that comes to touch those people, even as they are not themselves under the torturer's tools, they feel extraordinary pain, complicity in ways that start to be more um, empathetically and sympathetically uh, understandable for a reader. Do you, th- do you think that's right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, and describing torture itself, is it just seems, I, I don't want to say that anything in the universe is uh, out of bounds for a writer. It's just something that is very, very fraught sort of loaded with danger. There's a serious danger of voyeurism, of uh, trying of making your work seem alive for a minute by injecting it with a touch of just pure, painful evil um, under the guise of sort of moral seriousness about that evil. It's just very fraught. And do you think the novel is in, in some ways a better conduit for making people have um, revelations about their own complicity in their government's work doing this in a way that all of those more information-saturated books and documents and reports have not been? Well, I wouldn't want to, you know, pick one over the other or ban one. I think it takes, it takes both. Sort of the strategy that I was just talking about wouldn't work were it not for the existence of mm. reports and journalism and et cetera. But where the novel comes in, especially at the level of form, I'll come to a subject and say, for my audience, what expectations do they have for a story like this? And where do, they, where do those expectations come from? And how can I use those expectations productively? How can I twist them or do something different or come from the other side or turn everything upside down so that they suddenly, you know, they, these expectations may be un, unconscious, but they become, the novel can make them aware. The novel can make the reader aware of expectations they held without even knowing it. And that the energy of that moment is powerful. Mm-hmm. So uh, Amira, who we spend a a good deal of the novel with, is Italian, and she was born Maria. But after meeting and marrying Ayub, she changes her name and converts to Islam. However, the story you tell about her conversion is far from the stereotypes that we see, especially in American media and, and even in novels. The Amira is not particularly devout. And yet she feels a close connection to Islam because of its importance to her husband and his family. She is neither zealous nor blasé about her faith. It's a commonplace thing for her to pray, but she doesn't feel it as a burden. 
How do you understand Amira's faith? And was it important to you to have a conversion story that doesn't hew to our expectations for representations of that experience? Yes, absolutely. I found that in contemporary fiction, the way that religion is handled, at least 90% of the time, bears very little relationship to the way that I see religion of, of any type manifested in the lives of people that I meet and people that I know. And I think that applies doubly to depictions of Islam, which often come freighted with uh, a different kind of a different kind of scrutiny. Yeah, I, I wanted with Amira to have a conversion narrative that was in some sense, just like with with torture, I was to some extent running as fast as possible away from certain narrative templates and narrative reflexes. With Amira, I was doing something similar with conversion stories. You know, people convert, people practice one religion or another. I wanted the place of religion in Amira's life to resemble the place that I see religion occupying in the lives of so many people I know and meet, which is in the daily mix in constantly improvised way. Sometimes it's more in the foreground, some in the background. It's not entirely internally consistent. It's meaningful, but not the one system governing all the other systems. And sometimes it's something she's thinking about a lot. Sometimes it's something she's not thinking about very much at all. And it's a part of her life, like geopolitics, like having to make rent, like mm-hmm. having a job, like having conflicted feelings about spending a lot of time with her high school boyfriend, etc. In a lot of post 9-11 fiction, in a lot of fiction period, when religion comes in, it's like a big flashing neon sign. Here's the here's the religion. Here's how to understand this person. They are a X. Insert insert religion here. And that just bears so little relationship to life to me. Mm-hmm. Did you did you have any idea at the time you were writing this that school boards would be the focus of such intense cultural angst? No, definitely not. And in fact, when I was writing those parts of the book, I was drawing on some childhood memories of uh, a time in American life where the question of like intelligent design so-called versus mm-hmm. evolution mm-hmm. was uh, yeah. a big question for school boards, certainly in central Pennsylvania where I was growing up. And I think not only there and no, of course I, it's been very strange to see school boards yet again, be uh, in, a, in a much more explicit way than they are in the novel. Uh, it's been very strange to see school boards coming back into the news the same time that my, novels coming out yeah in a way your depiction of the school board is 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 tame compared to what we see now um and yet i'm I'm not uh 
totally up on the the intricate histories of American school board politics, but I believe that um, around the time the novel is set, just 2005-ish, um, is when these shifts in the nature of school board politicization, people identifying as a Republican or a Democrat school board member was really first taking seed. And it's, that's now perhaps flourishing. Uh, yeah, for sure. And and I think it's, you know, that's the part of this that, that feels very true to our moment is that, you know, as Mel is involved with this other school board member, their initial kind of get together is because she's seen as a sort of democratic member of the board and he's a Republican member and they have to hash out uh, the budget in a way that's going to going to pass through and she's got to make inroads. Yeah. And so she's using her kind of past activist experience in this, what could be seen as a kind of dull quotidian thing about the world, but it becomes a kind of um, way for her to use smarts and influence to affect change. And in a way, it's this kind of micro micro version of these, these ways that these kind of interchanges happen more globally. And there's so much in the novel that takes tiny micro localities and echoes them out. And, and all of a sudden, as a reader, we see, oh, that acts in a way, either in its structure or its outcomes, the way that uh, a more global structure would. So as you were sort of thinking about these kind of micro, macro structures and events, um, were you trying to kind of uh, see the ways in which fiction could do connective work between them? And, and was that something that was difficult to do? Or did it seem just kind of natural to the way that they, we have these microcosms within our daily life? Well, both, I think. One thing that novels do, one, things, one thing that novels are for is for the novelist, the author, to sort of go up to the limits of what they know and then figure out a way to go a little bit further. And it not into a new level of knowing, but into a new realm that I don't know the name for. Maybe we, maybe that's just art or the novel. <laughs> and <laughs> so I don't have a thesis that I could express as like a debate proposition, for example, about the relationship between intimate daily life and massive geopolitical developments. Other than, other than my conviction that both sides of this equation or both sides of this coin are fundamentally constructed out of the same stuff, right? And it sounds a bit mm. mystical, but they're there is only living second by second, minute by minute. Everything is lived out. Everything has a dailiness to it. Um, even things that we think about as soaring above dailiness or representing ruptures with dailiness or with the ordinary, they have their ordinariness. The thing that you just described, that sense that we are, you know, all kind of 
meeting out the ordinary work of living and that that work is not dissimilar from, you know, the ways in which people live seemingly extraordinary lives, but worked through day to day. And I, and I feel like, you know, you're not parroting what she's doing at all. You're just in that same arena in which the kind of ordinary gets different. Uh, it, it gets a different spotlight in in certain novels, and that spotlight helps us understand how even so-called extraordinarily extraordinary lives are lived day to day. There's a a risk of making parallels that are too neat. This thing happened on the school board is the the same as, or a symbol of, or allegorical for this development on the global stage. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted it to feel connected, but in a way that could not be reduced to a one-sentence formulation like that, that had to exist as a novel. Mm -hmm. And I hope I succeeded. Uh, so I actually first came upon your writing uh, with a remarkable essay that you wrote for The New Yorker about having a manuscript for a novel stolen from you. For this novel. For this novel. Yeah. I, I, I didn't realize. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you note that sitting at the heart of that crime um, of stealing your work was, quote, an uncomfortable truth about how little space there can sometimes be between legitimate and illegitimate participation in a collective fiction. When I finished Plains, I had the distinct sense that you were telling the story about our participation as Americans in a collective fic fiction about our moral righteousness. Would you first give us a, a little sense of how that um, theft happened, how you discovered it? And then could you talk a little bit about this overlay with the notion of a collective fiction? Yeah, the there was a con man, I guess he could be called, who had picked as his target the sort of world of publishing. And he was, over the course of a few years, he was going around impersonating people's agents and people's editors and other people who they expected they were routinely in contact with and um, tricking us into sending copies of our manuscript, which of course would not go to our agent or editor, but would go to this con artist who is now alleged by the U.S. government to be a young Italian man named Filippo Bernardini. Uh, so it's yeah, one day, I know. Yeah, so one one morning, uh, this was before my book had even sold. Uh, one morning, I woke up. I had what appeared to be an email from my agent. It said, "Could you send me?" I I only have on hand your manuscript in a PDF form. I need the word file. Can you send it over? And I did. And I hadn't, from the con man's perspective, I didn't do it the right way. He had been banking on me hitting reply and that would have made the con work. But instead I had made a new email. So it didn't go to him. It went to my real agent who was not at his computer. So the con man said, well, could you send it again? And of go through a few steps of that. Eventually, through his persistence, he did convince me to send him my manuscript. And then shortly after that, my agent sat down at his computer to start his day, saw that I had sent him my manuscript a few times and knew that something was probably wrong because of course he had my manuscript, he's my agent. <laughs> uh, so quite alarming, but all's well that ends well. Nothing 
nothing bad has come of it. Uh, and has he has he gone to prison? He is, yeah, awaiting trial. His trial has not started. Um, before I let you go, would you be willing to recommend a few books that you think are engaging in some of the same kinds of um, shaking awake of the readers to a, a, a moral imperative to understand the context of their lives? And they can be recent or historical. Or if that um, is less appealing, I'd also love to just hear things that are bringing you joy or distraction recently. Well, uh, you will not be surprised to hear, based on my previous answers, that I have a kind of suspicion for the idea of the novel that that shakes one awake. Like that's sort of a a narrative template in itself. That uh, through its repetition and its conventions produces work that doesn't seem to be shaking anyone awake. Right. Like maybe maybe novelistically shaking someone isn't uh, always the best way to go about awakening them to something. And so I have a real appetite for and I'm really drawn to works that come that come at things sideways and and sneakily. And so a huge, huge influence in the development of the novel. I'm not sure how much it's visible in the final product, but a, a huge influence in the development of the novel is the work of the German writer W.G. Sebald. Uh, in, for example, his novel, The Rings of Saturn, it presents itself as notes of a guy wandering around East Anglia and just reporting what he sees and who he talks to. But page by page, as the novel progresses, the reader comes to understand that the narrator is not just out on a walk. We're not just hearing what he saw and who he talked to. We are being given sort of a key to his deep preoccupations about mm. sort of history and decay, war, uh, destruction, suffering, and realizing that he sort of sees these things everywhere and is alive to their presence everywhere. And then suddenly, if the book is working for you, you're kind of feeling that way too, mm -hmm. uh, for a moment at least. And it's, for me, very powerful and much more powerful than something that would sort of conventionally get slotted as a, quote, social issue novel. Yeah, and you think you're on a walk. Um, yeah. with a man <laughs> across the countryside and all of a sudden you realize you're involved in in precisely the kinds of thinking that uh have shaped the 20th century yeah yeah someone once jokingly described it to me someone who did not like the novel but he said imagine who did not like the rings of saturn did not like Sebald said it's like if bill bryson's a walk in the woods was about the holocaust <laughs> uh, yes but that i i mean not <laughs> i would read that you know um so as long as it had um bill bryson's friend on the on the walk right. as well so that novel is an absolutely huge huge benchmark for my 
thinking about literature and for my approach to this novel in particular. Right now I'm writing about a piece about the um, an Austrian novelist, Marlon Haushofer. Very little of her work has been translated into English and of that that has, uh, it's all out of print in America. But next month, her, by overwhelming consensus, her great work, a novel called The Wall, is being put back into print in America by New Directions. And it is fantastic. It's about, it's fantastic and in a way that bumps up against some things we've been talking about. There's, it's about a woman who is meant to be spending the weekend uh, with friends in uh, like a Austrian Valley hunting cabin getaway. And they drive up there, the, f- the friends go into town to get some supplies and they don't come back. And the narrator soon realizes that a, the valley has been sealed off from the rest of the world by an invisible force field. Hmm. And B, it appears that everyone outside of the force field, uh, at least in its immediate vicinity, is dead. Oh my goodness. And so it starts off as a kind of Robinson Crusoe, I am legend. You assume it's going to be sort of A, survival story, B, a, a mystery, including some degree of solution about, well, what exactly happened? What caused this problem? Um, how is she going to get out? How is she going to turn off the force field? That's the narrative template that is immediately activated. And instead it becomes this totally existential novel about her just learning to live in the hunting cabin by herself and finding a cow and learning how to take care of the cow and being afraid that the cow is going to die or eat a piece of glass and what will she do and becoming best friends with a cat that she finds and a dog that she finds and just living and i don't sound so extraordinary it's very extraordinary and contains these sort of ecstatic moments of like sort of happiness and freedom it's so strange and also of course intermingled with uh fear terror etc and every every turn every next thing that happens is both undercutting your expectations that it's going to be a certain kind of survival slash escape thriller and also just and in part not just despite that fact but in part because of it it's just like totally totally thrilling um uh, yeah, I can't wait to to recommend this and to get it myself. Um, and then I, you know, I'm always happy to re-recommend Zabald because he is he's a writer that figures heavily in my own imagination. But these are great recommendations, and it's been so nice to talk to you, Peter. Yep, great to talk. Thank you. that's all from me for now. My thanks to Peter Baker, whose novel Plains is available today from an independent bookstore near you. You can find Peter's recommendations as well as all of our previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com. Until next time, 
This has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.